Continuing tonight in Revelation chapter 14, looking once again, last week we began in verse 6 and we're pressing through to verse 13 and the eternal gospel of the Lamb. We just sang until He returns or calls me home in the power of Christ I'll stand. Friends, if you understand what Scripture says about the second coming of Christ and what is required of the Gentile church during that period to be the corporate Stephen, if you will, provoking the nation of Israel to jealousy on the day that Christ returns for His people to the derision of His enemies and to split the eastern sky, then you know when you sing that line until He returns or calls me home in the power of Christ I'll stand, then you better stand in the power of Christ lest you would not be standing at all. By the time we get to chapter 14 of the Revelation, we have seen the rise of the beast out of the land, the false prophet that comes to the aid of the first beast, the Antichrist, that rises out of the sea. And what he does is not smoke and mirrors, but instead a demonic spiritual reality. Having a power not his own, he exercises power on behalf of the first beast and initiates and maintains the worship of the Antichrist. Even calling down fire from heaven, animating the image of the first beast that it may speak and initiating the mark of the beast among his followers, causing all who will not worship the image of the beast to be slain. What we see here is a counterfeit, the nature of the usurper, the counterfeit of God's creation, the counterfeit of God's provision, the counterfeit of God's seal. Satan is attempting to counterfeit the Trinity and the Godhead with the dragon playing the part of the Father, the Antichrist as the Son, and the false prophet as indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of this falsehood, the falsehood that is so powerful and pervasive by its nature that Jesus says it would lead the elect astray if that were actually possible. A power so great that no human would survive if the days had not been cut short in the midst of the exercise of this rebellion. The eternal gospel of Jesus Christ remains. In John chapter 14, verse 6, John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. An eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Scripture tells us that if anyone, whether it be man or angel, comes to you preaching a different gospel than the one you have received, let them be accursed. For there is only one gospel. The eternal gospel of Jesus Christ that has existed before the foundation of this world, that existed before the dragon himself who is fighting against it and will exist after he has been cast to derision into the lake of fire. The eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. And here, as we near the close of the age, we see it being proclaimed once more. 
Not just by His servants that are dying on a moment-to-moment basis at the hands of the beast, but here by an angel that is proclaiming it to all men. A Gospel that brings salvation to those that cling to it and damnation to those who reject it. For the Gospel and judgment have always and will always go hand in hand, friend, if you're going to be saved, as we have so often said, then there must be something to be saved from. That's why it's called the good news. Because if it wasn't for this mercy, it would be that wrath. And here it is being proclaimed. Now in verse 8, we see a second angel. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so here you have the picture of the gospel being proclaimed, a gospel that comes with salvation from wrath for those that receive it and allows wrath and the judgment of God to remain for those that don't. And then immediately we see the proclamation that the day of that wrath has come. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. This is the first mention of Babylon the Great in the Revelation, but it certainly won't be the last. We ask ourselves, who is Babylon the Great? And in short, because this is an overview, as we're recapping here, Babylon the Great is the false religious system of Satan, that being the Antichrist, with all of its various expressions. This is governance. This is worship. This is logistics. This is the full spiritual reality of this present darkness and His kingdom being manifest among men. She is spoken of in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5-6 through in this manner. On her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. I saw her and I marveled greatly. We'll hear much more about Babylon before her final fall comes. But there is a third angel to consider. Verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and of his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name. In the third angel, we see the damnation not simply of nations and religious orders but the damnation of individuals who worship the beast. Man, you see 
the content of the first angel's message, and it is the eternal gospel. A gospel that is always tied to judgment because the good news is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ from the judgment of God. So you can't have one without the other. This is the good news. The good news is that in Christ you become His and are removed from the judgment of God. So you see the eternal gospel being proclaimed. You see judgment come upon the beast and all of his system general. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, but the judgment of God does not simply fall upon institutions. It doesn't simply fall upon nations. For nations and institutions are all made up of a composite of individual people. Which is exactly where we end with the third angel in verses 9 through 11. Guys, at the end of the day, God does judge nations. He does judge institutions. We can see it over and over and over through the text. But at the end of the day, the judgment of God is going to come down to individual creatures, men and angels, standing alone before their Creator, being reckoned according to nothing but Him and them. And that's it. The judgment is not simply general, but personal to those individuals who stand apart from Him. It applies without exception to those who worship the beast. It applies without exception to those who take His mark. This is a day in which the concept of the second chance has come to an end. There will be no riding the fence. All too often throughout Christian history when things in society and the nature of this present darkness that is currently among us, the kind of small a antichrist, not the antichrist proper, but the same spirit that is among us that the Apostle John talks about in his first epistle. When when this thing rises up and things begin to come difficult for the people of God and we are asked to compromise and to set things aside and there is certainly some incrementalism in view here where we ask a little that's not too much and then we're asked more of and more of and more of and more of until there comes a point when you draw the line all too often in Christian history when we've drawn the line we've drawn it and said this far and no farther right up until the point where this current system says well then if that's the case then we're going to take X away from you or we're going to place Y on top of you. And so we draw these kind of lines all too often. And I mean, you can trace this all the way back to the, you know, you can trace this all the way back to the, well, you can trace it back further than the first century A.D. You can trace it all the way back. The Jews were doing the same things with the Babylonians and the Egyptians. And they'd say, this far and no further. And they say, well then, you know, you're not going to be able to keep your job. And all too often we've gone, well, well I've got to have a job. Or we're not going to allow you to travel. This is one of the Nazis' favorite things. Well, you know, I've got, I got to be able to travel, you know, because I've got to have a job. I've got to be able to see family. I've got to be able to do all the things that we have to do. Guys,
if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of his name, the reality is there will be no riding the fence in this day. One cannot, for instance, for the sake of physical necessity like food or medicine or even food or medicine for someone that's more precious to us than we ourselves are precious to us. Not provision on behalf of a child or provision on behalf of the elderly. One cannot, for the sake of physical necessity, enter into a relationship with the Antichrist and maintain any standing whatsoever before God. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where Christ, yes, expects you when given the same offer that Satan made him to take the same stand that he took. When Satan says, look, I will give you the kingdom. You don't have to go to the cross to get the kingdom. I will give it to you if you will just do this one thing for me. In the good character of his name, Christ told him no and was willing to suffer the consequences. The Lord expects the same character to be displayed amongst his children who are being conformed to his image and to his character. This is a single sum game. It is win or lose. There is no in between. In this day, you will not be able to stand before God and say, well, I know I shouldn't have done that but I needed, you know, you put a lot of responsibility on me. I needed to care for my family. I needed to to watch after my kids. I needed to watch after my grandkids. His answer in that day is that you should have trusted me even unto death. You know, the overarching theme of Revelation is perhaps most clearly and concisely seen here in chapter 14. It goes all the way back, you know, I'm... uh, I'm doing a lot of work right now in, in Exodus and in Joshua, getting ready for camp. And, you know, probably the most famous uh, discourse that Joshua makes, even though I don't know that it necessarily is the best one he makes, though it's a really good one. The most famous, you know, you know the most famous speech that Joshua gives is, you know, choose this day whom you will serve, as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. Now, I have a a real penchant for the dialogue that occurs between him and Caleb at another point in the book of Joshua. I think it's my personal favorite, but you know that's the most famous one, right? And, and hey, I mean, it's got good standing to be. I mean, it's an incredible statement. He says, you know, choose who you're going to serve. The reason he had to say that was because the reality of this present darkness was alive and well in his day, just as it is in ours. But in this day, when it's coming to its full and it's coming to its consummation, The overarching theme of Revelation is clearly seen, and it's this. Worship God or worship the beast, and everything else will follow. That's it. This is an eternal gospel, so everything that that follows will be of an eternal nature. It's not going to be for a season. It's not going to be for an hour. It's not going to be for a day. Choose whom you'll serve. Worship God or rebel. 
and everything else will come. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And what that wrath looks like is a literally the definition of a holy terror. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Now that's an interesting statement. He will drink the cup of God's, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And so for guys that are kind of dorks like me, when you see two words in the English that seem to be so similar, wrath and anger, they're set right there together in the text. It kind of makes you go, hmm, and you scratch your head and you start looking up those things and see what they mean. The word here that is translated as anger, the cup of his anger, this, this imagery of this vessel that is set aside specifically to deliver a particular thing. And it's not good if you're the receiver. This word for anger is orge, and it is anger that rises out of a settled disposition. This is the kind of anger that we would expect a judge to employ when he hands down the sentence. It's an intellectual anger. You have done something that is definitively evil and I am set against it and a measured, well thought out and certain punishment is to come. But the wine of his wrath that fills it is something different altogether. Wrath is thumos in the Greek. And it means passionate, emotional, boiling, raging anger. This is the storm. This is the, 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 the balanced opposite of the grace and mercy of God. If you have the grace and mercy of God displayed to its full extent, I've been teaching a lot of new members classes here uh, over the last year, uh, teaching another one right now, and we talked the other day about um, that God is infinite in His perfections and definitively holy, right? So He's holy, He's other than, and, and anything that He has is different than the way that anyone else has it. So when God has love, man, His love is different than the way that humans love. It's a whole different gear. Man, when God has mercy, His mercy is different than human mercy. Man, humans can't have mercy apart from Jesus Christ without becoming unjust. It's the only way humans can do it. God has a kind of mercy that's different. Man, God's mercy is definitively holy. He has mercy that doesn't make Him unjust. It makes Him more just. How crazy is that? Man, we've talked a lot here lately. God has a slavery that's not like any other slavery. God has a fear that's not like any other fear. Man, God is definitively holy. His stuff is different. He is other than, but not only that, He is infinite in His perfection. So man, when God shows you the grace, when He shows you His grace in Jesus Christ, it is as gracious as gracious can be. That's why 
when he fulfills those promises that bring that grace, like we saw this morning, it should produce in us, it should elicit out of us glory to his name for his mercy because it's incredible mercy. There's not any other mercy like it. It's the most merciful, merciful mercy that merciful mercy can be. It's mind blowing. All the things that are true about his grace and mercy are conversely true about his anger and wrath. Just as the good news is as good as the good news can get, the bad news is as bad as the bad news can get. Man, it is settled, judicious anger. And it is an absolute, emotional, raging storm of wrath. Just the way God's heart burns in love and passion for His people. Man, His gospel to us is is not simply judicious gospel. Amen? He doesn't just go, well, hey, listen, here's the deal. You were guilty. My son paid the price. And so, um, like, you know, some accountant, uh, bean counter looks down and goes, okay, I guess your debt's clear. No, man, His heart burns for His people. That's why he did this stuff. I mean, man, he, he loves with a love that we just don't, until we see it face to face, we won't even understand it. Buddy, by the same token, his heart burns in his wrath. And he says, you're going to drain it to the very drop. Those of you who teamed up with Satan, this spirit of lawlessness, the two sentient image bearers joining together as though they can overthrow the one that both gave and sustains their life. In this day, the fullness of His wrath will come. God is both judiciously determined and passionately driven to bring about the absolute torment of those who oppose Him. Man, Scripture speaks about the full strength of the wrath of God in the last days. But God's wrath has historically been tempered with mercy. It's certainly what we see today. It's what we've been seeing for millennia. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, it says, O Lord, I have heard the report of You, and Your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Or in Isaiah chapter 51, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. Who have drunk the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of His people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Historically, we see the wrath of God be tempered with the mercy of God. But not this time. This time it is as the psalmist says in 75 verses 7-8, through eight, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine well mixed and He pours from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Speaking on Revelation chapter 14, John MacArthur said it this way, Divine wrath is not an impulsive outburst of anger aimed capriciously at the people God does not like. It is the settled, steady, merciless, graceless, and compassionateless response 
of a righteous God against sin which He hates. Man, if that's not clearly seen in Revelation 14, I don't know where it can be seen. The outcome for those who fall under the wrath of a vengeful God is torment. Fire and sulfur, physical punishment, no rest day or night, emotional and spiritual judgment. Jesus spoke of the intensity of hell and said in Matthew 13, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus spoke of the eternity of hell in Mark chapter 9, verse 47 and 48, where He says their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. What's really wild about that to me is this. Is that all of this occurs in the presence of the Lamb and His holy angels. Verse 10, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and... Lost it again. Hang on. And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. All of this occurs with an audience of Christ and His angels. And I would have you note that Christ is not offended at the outcome or consequence of His own righteous judgment. Back up the page in chapter 14 and verse 4 through 5, speaking of the 144,000. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as a first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So even though the 144,000 are not mentioned specifically later in chapter 14, earlier in chapter 14, they're identified as being those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So if here you have the Lamb and His angels in the presence of these that are being tormented for their rebellion, then you better believe that the 144,000 are there along beside Him. And not only so, but the 144,000 are the first fruits of the fullness of the harvest that is to come. You can expect the first fruits to be indicative of the full harvest yet to come. The fact of the matter is this. Christ is not offended at the outcome or the consequence of His righteous judgment. And being conformed to His image, neither are the 144,000. And being the first fruits of all that will be brought to Christ at the harvest that is to come later in the chapter in verse 14 all the way through chapter or verse 20, you can say, then neither will they be offended. It has often been said, heard it said so many times, well surely there will be some kind of divine ignorance in heaven. For if we knew that there were people being tortured in hell, heaven could never truly be heaven. Now guys, let me tell you, that sounds real nice on the surface. What that is, maybe not the person saying that maybe doesn't know it, but the doctrinal reality that lies at the basis of that statement 
is not only heresy, it's blasphemy. Because what it says is, I could never be happy, I could never be content, I could never be fulfilled in heaven if I knew that there was hell and people in it. Because I have more merciful, gentle sensibilities than Christ has. Because, friends, I got to tell you, Christ is okay with it. He is comfortable with the measure of his wrath in justice. He does it. He facilitates it. He brings it to be right in His own presence. This isn't the dirty little secret of the kingdom that they sweep under the rug and nobody talks about. No, He talks a lot about it. He's okay not only to give the order, but to be the one that executes it. He is not offended by His judgments. Friends, we are not more merciful than He. And if in some way we think we're more merciful than He, then we have stepped outside of the bounds of what God's mercy is. And in that day, and and hey, look, in fairness, we might not be able to handle it in the condition we're in right now. That's exactly right. We may not be able to handle it, man, because you're going to see way too much of yourself in all of those that are being tormented. But that way will be different. That day will be different. Having seen Him face to face, we will be made like Him. And we will not be offended by His judgment either. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle in chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. This is what we are right now. And yet, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. There is a day coming when our sensibility in sanctification, that judgment seat of Christ where all the wood, the hay, and the stubble are burned up in a moment and all that is left behind is is the gold, the silver, and the precious stones that are the work of the Holy Spirit Himself in the new creation. And in that day, when this mortal coil passes away and our sanctification is brought to completion and glorification in that day, we will see things from the exact same perspective that Christ sees them from. And if He is satisfied, then we will be satisfied. And you don't need to worry about what it will mean to your conscience to know that there is wrath in that day your conscience will be ever bit as settled as his. So, in the midst of this darkest hour, right before the true dawn, there is a call for the endurance of the saints. Because you better believe that the reason these people are taking that mark is because there is an extreme amount of pressure to do so. I remind you back in chapter 12 when he can't get his hands on Israel proper in great wrath and anger it says the dragon turns his attention to the other children of the woman the followers of Jesus Christ 
And so here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Man, here's a call to endure. And why do you endure? Because God will supply and He will keep you from the edge of the sword and He will keep you from famine and He will keep you from the wrath of the Antichrist. Absolutely not. No, here is why you should endure. Because God is much more faithful. His faithfulness is much bigger than those small things. You should endure because I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Man, we have to have endurance because with every defeat, the anger of the Antichrist and his followers grow against God and those who follow the Lamb. We must have endurance because this is the means that God has ordained for his blessings in this day to come to his people. And so I'm going to cut it off there for tonight. We'll pick up with the harvest of the earth next, well, week after next. I guess next week is business meeting. But um, I will say this. This being the ordained future of the Gentile church, it is my prayer that we take the um, sunny day that he has given us and do not waste it, but use it to prepare for these very things, for this very level of faithfulness. Jason, pray for us, sir.